This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast collaboration from Innovar City Press and CT Creative Studio. Metal tracks never been a fabricator, but like MOK, I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. Tish Harrison Warren is a priest in the Anglican Church of North America and the author of The Liturgy of the Ordinary. I said that your book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, was like Equimini by Outcast in the sense that it was a classic that you could return to again and again. She had no idea what I was talking about. And so I said, what is something that I think that white people might like? And I just know that the Beatles are popular and like Seinfeld is popular. <laughs> so I couldn't think of a Seinfeld episode. So I just said the Beatles. And I know they have like a they have a show with, no, uh, what's it called? Uh, a Like a submarine? Isn't that something big with the Beatles, a submarine? Well, they, they did a song, We All Live in a Yellow Submarine. Yes. It's like, maybe it's like that. Is that a good Beatles album? That's not an album. Oh. That's a song. Never mind. Tish is someone who cares deeply about the liturgy. She's written about it. She's she's a convert from outside of a liturgical church into a liturgical church. And so she has the not just the zeal of the convert, but the freshness of perspective. So she sees things in the liturgy that people who might have lived with it for a long time haven't seen. What I wanted to use this conversation it's not an apology of liturgy. It's not like you should become an Anglican, though you should. The premise of Tish's book is God can change us precisely through the things that are repeated over and over and over again. And it's precisely in the ritual that God can change us radically. When you did come out with your book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, did you expect, like, when you finished it, did you, like, drop the pen? Did you expect the reception that you got, or were you surprised by it? I am still regularly surprised by it and overwhelmed by the response. I mean, I was a very new writer when I started. This is my first book. I got a, honest, I don't know if this is weird to talk about, but I got a fairly small advance, because which means they weren't expecting it so much. Like, your advance is how much they kind of expect you to sell. So... Um, and I was like hoping that my mother would buy several copies. Like I was, (laughs) you know, where you're just, you're like, okay, if my 10 best friends each buy like, you know, five copies, that's 50, you know, you're, so you're, and you know, but the book has, has done really well and was now translated into I think five languages and it won CT book of the year in 2018. So um, I, I'm not saying that hopefully in any way to brag. I'm just saying it's just, it still regularly astounds me. Like what about this book you think struck a chord in the culture when it did? I don't know. Like, I feel like any book that strikes a chord with the culture, there's some mystery around it, right? Like it's certainly not a formula. Um, there was a period of time in kind of the early aughts where... Um, 
There was such a focus on being radical and being sold out for Jesus and doing big things for Jesus and being super into social justice, um, which I'm not against, but I think a lot of people were like, how does this work in my actual life where I have like a job and I'm limited and I have like, you know, I get, I, I don't, I don't have endless, um, like unlimited energy and time. And so I think people were eager to know what faithfulness looks like in the actual context of their lives. Um, so I hope the book isn't like baptizing quietism and I don't think it is. I think I'm calling people to risk, but I'm also just trying to keep it very, very tethered to the ground and to reality. And also, um, really, I'm grateful for is that it's not been one pocket of people like it hasn't just been women I think there's been as many or more male readers who've responded and it hasn't just been like conservative folks I think the appeal to a lot of people is because um I am often in my writing trying to speak to common humanity so there is, like, we all have bodies, we all get bored, we all struggle with our mundane life. That's something that across right-left divides, like, these are spiritual things that we wrestle with. So, I don't know, I hope some of it is the common humanity of it. And churches have studied it together a lot, and I think that's partly because it touches themes that run across every person's life. I mean, every person wakes up and goes to sleep and works and fights with has arguments with people close to them like this is this is really common stuff so it's a i guess it's something that a lot of people can identify with interspersed with the book is this this like this tetheredness to ordinary life that you speak about but it's also a, a theme running through it is the liturgical acts itself if you could just wave a magic wand and the whole world would understand this about the importance of liturgy in their spiritual lives what would it be i would want people to understand that we are all deeply deeply formed by our practices and by the repetitive acts of worship in our life and that does not always look like liturgy on sunday like i talk about in the book like picking up your iphone over and over and over again um, can be a repetitive act of worship. I mean, you're not worshiping the iPhone, but in terms of what, I mean, worship is ultimately about ascribing worth, right? If you look at the way we use our time, if you look at the way we use our money, the way we use our bodies, the way we use relationships, these are what have worth in our life. And so there are, and this is straight from James K.A. Smith, but there are Certainly, um, what he calls, and what I would also call secular liturgies of if things like uh, listening to Fox News is something that is deeply formative, things like saying the pledge, things like going on Twitter and hashtagging, these are all really important um, liturgies. I mean, I also think things like the like budgeting and what we do the first two hours of our day and what we do the last two hours of our day. Like all of these are deeply formative and they're culturally shaped. Like you're not making these decisions on your own. A lot of this stuff is 
given to you. And, um, and so I just want people to know that that forms them. And so we need to be intentional about taking up counterformative practices, taking up practices that are forming us as disciples of Jesus, because not being formed is not an option. And we're not primarily formed by like being able to recite the creed. Like that's not what's going to make a disciple. One of the things that I loved about your book is it's one of those times where you have an idea that is kind of that, that, that I haven't completely articulated, and then you see it put into practice in the literature. And one of the things I used to say to my students all of the time was the secular liturgical calendar that moves you from event to event to event and thing to thing. And one of the mm-hmm. exercises we would do as a class is to put on put on the on the whiteboard the liturgical the, the the American secular liturgical year, even when that liturgical year overlaps with the Christian calendar. So the question is like, what are the major themes and ideas they want you to get from Christmas and how does that form you? What do you do? What do you do on New Year's Eve? What do you do on Valentine's Day? And so I said, if you're not careful that you can actually repeat the American liturgical year over and over again until you retire and die. Would you say that the church's liturgy is a kind of disruption, a, a counter narrative? Yeah, it. I do think so. Certainly to American culture. I mean, that's the thing. It was interesting talking. I was talking to my husband, Jonathan, this morning about this this podcast and the idea of being a disruptor. And in some ways, the question of disruption always has to be, well, who are you disrupting? Like, in what culture are you disrupting? Because in some sense, liturgy is very much the status quo in the sense that it's thousands and thousands of years old. Like this is the way we've done church (laughs) for a long time. So it's tradition as the new rebellion. Yeah. In many ways. I, I just think tradition is tradition is unavoidable. Like secular, very, very secular people who never darken the door of a church are absolutely acting out of tradition. They're acting out of a, a particular intellectual tradition, philosophical tradition. Often they don't know it, um, but they are acting out of a theology in a lot of ways. And so tradition's unavoidable. So being intentional and transparent about that in many ways is disruptive, I think. And again, like I think for this whole podcast, for the notion of disruption, you have to ask, what are you disrupting? Like if you're in progressive circles, to be progressive isn't actually disruptive. You're just going with the grain of your own community. But if we're talking about sort of American consumer culture, I do think that liturgy, to to some very real extent, disrupts that. I mean, the problem, I've said this elsewhere, the problem with consumerism is it eats everything. So liturgy can then become a, a sort of like its own, you know, consumer product, but generally I think old boring things and tradition and roots are something that we are deeply eager for, but is very countercultural right now. Very. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was that what is the disruption disruption depends on context. What is brave in one context is not brave in another. And so you're correct. Sometimes when I'm in a evangelical high emphasis on the scripture kind of culture and I'm talking about 
issues of justice. In that context, sometimes I'm disrupting the status quo. But also, if I'm in a very progressive, I, I think that there's always kinds of, there are people who only want part of me. And some people who want the Bible part, but they don't want the justice part that it comes from the Bible. But there's other groups who say, hey, talk as much as you want about justice. But then when you talk about other elements of the Christian life, they say, well, don't bring that part. One of the things that I've, I've loved about the liturgy personally is that in some ways the liturgy precedes this fight that we're having in kind of modern Christianity where we're talking about the relationship between these two things. And I love the way that the liturgy disrupts these binaries. Because if you just read through some of the prayers, you hear discussions about justice and concern for the needy. At the same time, you hear these traditional doctrines of the Christian church where we have things like Trinity Sunday and Pentecost. And so one of the things I like about the liturgy is that in many ways it precedes our agenda and it challenges the church to be the church. That's exactly right. I totally agree with that. And I love that. I mean, um, I think the scriptures do the same thing. Like the scriptures just tear apart any kind of weird binary we put between truth and beauty or truth and justice or orthodoxy and social justice or orthodoxy and orthopraxis. So they just the Bible is speaking out of a different cultural context in many ways. And it... Um, disrupts it. But I also think that happens with liturgy. And, you know, Esau knows this, but there, there's, um, you know, a saying, um, lex orandi, lex credendi, the rule of prayer is the rule of faith. The way that we pray is what shapes our faith. And so I think learning these and having to say these ancient prayers that are given to us by the church, I mean that, I mean the Psalms, but I also mean like the colics, like the prayers of the church that we are given, teach us to have a faith that doesn't fit, um, that doesn't fit what uh, modern culture kind of offers us. And that I think that's really, really important to engage in the liturgy is, is like in and of itself a countercultural act, because this is an ancient thing that is, that didn't come from like you know, white American modern culture. So it is um, shaping us. It's a, it's the way that all countercultural experiences shape you. That's my favorite color, but it's subject to change. Hey everybody, Richard here, producer of The Disruptors. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com disruptors with an E to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now, let's go back to the conversation. I'm about to get on my liturgical hobby horse. I'm about to ride it down the road for a minute. <laughs> I mean, you and I, this is what we do, right? So one of the things that I that I hear people say all of the time is about the accessibility of the liturgy. Especially when I'm in kind of evangelical space, they say, well, what we really need to do is, is to be more informal. And so the kind of the low church, less liturgical experience is seen as more accessible. But what I try to explain mm-hmm. to my friends is that when you take away the liturgy, 
and this is no shade of Chris Tomlin, and you just play like Chris Tomlin and Stephen Curtis Chapman, that's still encoding white culture. It's just modern white culture. But the liturgy is something that's equally alien to all of us, and it's in that place where we can gather together and actually come into worship. It's the, it, it's, it is literally the, the ancientness of the liturgy that, that, that speaks into and actually has the potential to unite. I was thinking about this, and by the time this podcast comes out, it, it'll be— It'll be old news, but we're sitting at Christianity Today in the middle of this huge discussion around the article that they put out about the impeachment of the president. And I was praying morning prayer this morning, and this is one of the things we read this every single day, and it just becomes a part of the background of your word. But this, and I and I tweeted it out this morning, and it says this: "O oh Lord, guide those who govern us and lead us in the way of justice and truth." And so this was not written with any political agenda related to modern American politics. But as I was praying this liturgy that's been prayed for thousands of years, I saw us, I, I, I prayed with the church through the generations that what matters is that for those who govern us to practice justice or to do justice and to be obedient to the truth. And so it helped me to shape my prayers in this moment to say, God, I'm not in control of the political outcome of what happens in the United States, but I do know what you value. And what you value is justice, doing that which is right and truth. And that for the Christian, it is never merely a, a an assertion of power. And in that moment, the liturgy itself stepped out of time into my world and disrupted it because one of the things that's easy to happen is that we i can be so concerned with how i think the political outcome of the world should be that like the 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 search for truth gets lost in it and so i just thought this is one example of the liturgy as ancient and disruptive and i think that draws us out of faith being something that is mostly self-expression um or, you know, expressing Americanness or expressing progressiveness. I think faith is something outside of us and truth is something outside of us that shapes us, that we don't own it any more than we could own, you know, a hurricane or the crab nebula. It's something that's bigger than us that we enter into. And so the church helps us to enter into that. I mean, ultimately we're not worshiping the church we're worshiping, you know, Jesus and uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is just way bigger than anything we could ever nail down or comprehend. There's going to be mystery after mystery. But the church allows us to enter, I think, more deeply into that mystery by teaching us um, the faith through these practices. Like this is the way that we learn the faith is through these practices. And like you you were saying it's kind of caught more than taught in the sense that of course, like of course a week ago you Esau could have given a lecture to your students about you know how we need justice in government. Like and that would have been a good helpful lecture. But there's something that happens through prayer that changes our hearts towards that in a way that um, that is different than what you could have just lectured, right? That praying for that, get, receiving that ancient prayer where you are praying for justice and truth with those who govern us is a different experience. Because I never prayed for government authorities. Like, I just didn't. And even though it's commended in Romans. And it was... 
I didn't I didn't know what to say. Like I was really cynical about the whole thing and you know, it it's hard not to just be like um well god help the evil leaders, you know, or I I just didn't even know. I didn't know where to start and um and so I really like historically haven't and the thing that has the reason that I have prayed for our leaders is because of the church teaching me to. And, you know, as part of our liturgy, we pray for the leaders, whether they're Democrats, whether they're Republicans or independents, we pray for justice and truth. And that that has helped me to actually obey the scriptures um, by entering into this practice of the church that I just couldn't get to on my own. And I think yeah, so my next book, I, I don't want to give away like the a good line in my next book, but I talk about faith being more of a craft than a feeling. Meaning it's something that you it's something that you take up as a practice, like an artist takes up a practice. And an artist can say like, you know, I don't really feel like painting today. But that doesn't really matter because it's a craft that you do. And I think I think it's helpful to think of entering the Christian faith in the same sort of terms. Tish, I know me and you are having a great conversation. <laughs> you but apparently, I'm though, apparently somebody wants to join in. So we're going to allow our assistant is going to join in and say some stuff. Like photo bombing. Yeah, exactly. He's podcast but bombing podcasting. us right now. Tish Richard here. Um, Hi, Richard. I mean, Richard and Hi. I are also friends. You mentioned earlier that consumerism has a habit of devouring everything. I was wondering if um, that was something you were concerned about sort of being a part of. Liturgy has become a little trendy, a bit trendy. And there are things that really concern me about that. Um I think there's really good things about it. And I and I don't think that just because it's trending means we should like let go of the liturgy. Um I had a my pastor Thomas McKenzie in Nashville used to say uh about the church calendar. He the first time he sort of taught on the church calendar, he was like, "Okay, an advent's really hip right now." But it won't be in 20 years, and we are still going to be doing Advent then. Like, so I do think there's some sense of, like, I, I think it's good that evangelicals are discovering this. But I was actually at a conference this past year. It's called the Ancient Evangelical Future Conference. And um, had a great discussion on this and kind of a debate with a colleague. It was about younger evangelicals and the liturgy. And... Um, my point, his was his point of younger evangelical. He's done research, and there's like real research that younger evangelicals are embracing more ancient practices of the church. That that's factually true, and he was saying this is all good, and I was saying I think it is all. I think it's mostly very good, <laughs> but I also said um, consumerism can eat anything and I as an example I said if you don't believe me go to Hot Topic you know or any store like that or no Urban Outfitters is what I said not Hot Topic sorry I'm dating myself Urban Outfitters in this what I mean is that you can go there and you can find 
you can spend like a hundred bucks on something with an anti-consumerism message, a t-shirt with an anti-consumerism message or, or pants that were made to look like you didn't spend a hundred bucks on them, right? There's a sense that like anything can be marketed and we see this all like all the time with um, any kind of countercultural movement. You saw this with the hippie movement, right? In the 60s, they were countercultural and then it became... They can commoditize your rebellion. They, exactly, exactly. The example that I use in class is that when you decide, I want to get a mohawk, you usually put the mohawk down the middle of your head, not around the side, because they've taught you how to rebel. And when you're mad at your parents and you don't want to go to Macy's, you go to Urban Outfitters. And so so for whatever personality you want to put on, this is old because when people used to go to the mall, you can go into the mall and find that store that sells your rebellion. And so you're not really rebelling. Oh, totally. You're rebelling right. within the constrained ways. The best example of this is actually... Um, the grunge movement when, you know, Nirvana. See, I know, I know that Nirvana <laughs> teen spirit. Kurt Cobain had the shirt that it was, it was, he got a picture on Rolling Stone very famously with a t-shirt that said corporate magazines still suck. Um, and Rolling Stone laughed their way to the bank, right? Cause it sold millions, millions of copies. So he was rebelling against corporate magazines, but even that was taken as a commodity. All that to say, so since my book has come out, I have seen things that have worried me a little bit um, in the sense that liturgy is cool, but people only want to take the parts of it they like or the parts of it that feel good or the parts of it that are interesting or resonate. So that's one thing. The second thing is we're, there has been a movement it's really hard to sell ancient liturgy because it's like free and out there. The resources <laughs> yes. are. So they, so there's constantly this like new thing, like here's a liturgy for this kind of person, or here's a book of liturgy about this. And it's, it's like we're trying to reinvent the liturgy. So we have something to sell because evangelicals will try to sell any, I mean, there is a sense that evangelicalism is really shaped by consumer habits. Liturgy doesn't is old and doesn't sell well, so there can be like a a tendency to um, reinvent the liturgy. There's a there's a plethora of liturgists now, and I'm not trying to pick on anyone, but I just want to say like before you change the liturgy, you should sit in the liturgy for like about two decades, so. and then maybe you can think about changing things. But it just it, it there is still a tendency. I think to do that and then also just to pull from different liturgies if I like this and I like this and I'm going to use this but there's not coherence to it and this took thousands of years to form so it's I just am a little concerned with it being too trendy without people understanding the roots of it of of it can just become another consumer thing of this is cool and this feels good but the actual parts of the liturgy that have shaped me the most are the things that I am don't think are cool and feel uncomfortable with and then over time have are sort of I'm kind of taught by like here's an example 
crossing yourself with like using your hands to cross yourself. I hated that practice at first. It felt super weird and, you know, it felt like a Roman Catholic thing and I'm not anti-Roman Catholic at all, but I'm not Roman Catholic. So it felt like I was like posing and it felt weird. And, but I just entered into it and just did it because that was, it was something and it shaped me. I'm also saying we can't have liturgy without a deep understanding of tradition. So one of the things, like Esau, you were saying earlier about how um, liturgy is itself disruptive. I think learning church history well is itself disruptive um, because it just um, calls into so, so much of, of tradition and history calls into question a lot of our modern assumptions, things that we, the water we swim in, things we don't even notice. So given the fact that we know that like, all of the people who read your books, they read who read the liturgy ordinary. They're not all going to become Anglicans and adopt the liturgical calendar. So, what is the success? What do you think I've I've done what God called me to do? It is hard to to be a Christian in the world. I don't just mean in America or a certain kind of Christian. I just mean it's like hard to be faithful to Jesus. And so, what I want to do is help give people crags to hold on to, like. Um, I'm thinking of like rock climbing, you know, you, you find a crag to just pull you up. And, um, and a lot of times what we need is just the next crag, um, to hold on to something solid and real that can support our weight that can keep us going. And so to some extent, that's what I want to give my readers. I also really do feel a calling to, um, I want, I want to bring beauty and truth together. I think it was Justin Martyr said, everything true and beautiful belongs to us, talking about the church, to Christians. And what he meant is that any single thing in the world that you find that is true and beautiful, we can learn from and receive from, even things outside of the faith, right? If you find truth and beauty, that's from Jesus, period wherever it be found. And so that can't just be abstract. Like we learn about Jesus through this particular tradition of the church, through orthodoxy and practice, which we constantly have to hold together. We can't focus on practice so much that we leave behind doctrine, like, or focus on doctrine so much we don't care about practice. I mean, something I pray before I write almost every single time I write is from the Psalms that Lord send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. And I think it's because the idea of light, beauty, splendor, and truth, doctrine even have to go together. So I want, I want to help weave that together for people in I mean, that is weaved together. I don't have to weave them together. But I want to give people an imagination for the ways that beauty and truth go together. Say a little bit about kind of the aftermath of what happened when you wrote the first book. Like the year or two after that led to what became the second book. And is there a title? Can we debut the title? The title is going to be um, Prayer in the Night. That's the title of the book. This is the first time I've ever said it out loud. I'm scared now. Um, Prayer in the Night is the book. And the subtitle is For Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. 
it's framed around a pr- one prayer in um, the nighttime prayer office, which is called Compline, the Anglican nighttime prayer office. In 2017, we had a rough year. My father passed away. We had two miscarriages. We moved. Um, so uh, not not like a year of catastrophic loss. No one's ever seen this kind of loss before, but just a, just a hard year, like, like almost all of us have had at some point. And I, I kind of lost the ability to pray. Um, except I could pray Compline. I talk about that experience. It's kind of memoirish. I talk about that. Um, we had a time in our marriage when we had two miscarriages in a row as well when we had the miscarriage the um the um the hospital wasn't it was like a very very early so it was like the baby was smaller than you could put in the palm of your hand and the hospital wasn't going to do anything with it they were going to throw it away or incinerate it right and i actually said to them like give me the kid and i managed to actually get the baby from the hospital and I wrapped it up and put it in a box and I buried my little child and I didn't know what to say. Mm. And so I just pulled out the liturgy, the burial office from the Book of Common mm-hmm. Prayer and I performed the funeral liturgy for my child. It's actually, no one's ever heard this story before. The only person who knows about this are me and my wife. And one of the, the reason I talk about that is because when I was grieving, and I wasn't questioning God's existence, but I had no words to say about the grief that I was experiencing. And I used the words from the prayer book. And there's actually prayers in the Book of Common Prayer for a child who's died, which is different than a, like an adult who died. I identify deeply with your story. And I wrote for CT the story of, of us trying to get the body of our son who we lost at 14 weeks. Um, and it, and because it was, uh, actually 16 weeks here in Pennsylvania is when personhood is declared. That's when you get a death certificate, but 14 weeks wasn't count. It was two weeks short of being counted as a person. Um, so there was this weird medical limbo that you're talking about where they wouldn't give us the body, but we couldn't, there was, there wasn't, we didn't, know how to have the body like released for burial like you would a stillborn child so we it was this strange and really painful um bureauc like systemic it was a systemic problem right like we talk about systemic injustice this is like systemic injustice against babies that die but um and again in their families so um it wasn't, there was no individual doctor that was like trying to be maniacally cruel to us, but the system wasn't set up to reckon, recognize the reality of our grief and the personhood of this child. So um, we did eventually get the baby released to us and, and cremated him and buried him. And we did a memorial service around that. And um, I th- I wrote about that in CT. I have not, I got... I've never had so many people request um, that I share a liturgy with them as I've had for that. I mean, I would say still like six times a year, I think I have requests for it even now. And right after it came out, I had 
hundreds of requests for show us what did you pray? What did you do? And so we actually posted it to my old, decrepit, never used um, website so that people could have those resources. Because I think um, in that place of grief, you need the church comes around you like a mother and says, like, I know you can't believe I know you're not up to it right now. Here's some words to pray. These will carry you. This will take you to shore. It's like a life raft, you know? And I think going back to what you're saying about liturgy and consumerism, one of the things Stanley Harawas says is that evangelicals have a tendency to reinvent the wheel. Like we just want to, we want to make something, we want to reinvent it. The positive side of evangelicalism is our ingenuity, right? That we can like come up with new culturally relevant practices at every moment. But the negative side of evangelicalism is our ingenuity. Cause we, I think exhaust ourselves by having to like constantly reinvent things. And I understand where like revivalism and evangelicalism as it's currently formed in America came out of. Because when the church was really dead and it was mostly dead ritual, um, there was this sense of, no, we want, we want people to encounter Jesus with their emotions, with their ardent belief. And so, and so there was this response of revivalism, right? Where it was all about kind of what are the strength of our faith in Jesus and what we're feeling about that faith. But over a lifetime of discipleship, you cannot sustain ardent, unbreakable faith in Jesus constantly. That is just impossible because we are sinners and we are weak. And so we need these ancient prayers of the church to say, here's what, when you can't pray, here's what you pray. When you can't believe, you stand and say the Nicene Creed. Give up now, I keep going. Settle down, not ever knowing. Won't let my history bury me. Cause I ain't doing this just for me. If we change our rituals, we actually can become different kinds of people. The liturgy of the church disrupts the liturgy of the world. They're trying to form you to a certain thing. The rhythms of the church's year and its life has the ability to shape us differently. And so we sometimes think of disruption as something that happens in a moment. But sometimes we look up and we say, well, five or ten years down the road, I've become something different. And how did I get there? It was a series of small rebellions that made us into different people. Like we already did. And I think the Tish gives you a guide to those small rebellions. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We will be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. You can follow me at Esau McCauley, and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com. Disruptors.